All right, we're here to talk about the Airbnb and DoorDash IPOs. Uh, no, sorry, just kidding. <laughs> welcome, everyone. Christmas holiday shopping for 2020. No. Um, yeah, no, welcome to the show. Uh, we're going to do quick backward introductions here uh, with our guests. I'm Ray Wong, uh, one of the co-founders and your co-anchor here for Disrupt TV. We get our awesome uh, producer, Elle. Uh, she's in the middle here. And, of course, uh, we've got Lala here, uh, which will join us later to do the introductions. So quickly, working our way backwards, Marty, where are you calling from and what are you talking about today? Hey, Ray. I'm down here in Florida right now. I was able to escape Philadelphia for a few months uh, since our office was closed. But uh, today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how consumer dynamics are really driving organizational food and the importance of customer experience, as well as the introduction to uh, a company that we started within Comcast called Talent. That's awesome. Okay, cool. And here we're with Andrew as well. Andrew, you are the furthest away. We'll find out, but actually Dave is, uh, depending where you are. Um, tell us where you're calling in from. And of course, um, what are you going to be talking about today? Okay, I'm Andrew Hall. I'm calling from the UK, where as you can see, it's dark outside. Um, I run a small investment firm. And before that, uh, I worked for a long time in the advertising business. So the two key events of this week for me are obviously the situation with uh, the Facebook antitrust and, uh, of course, the Brexit, which I will be talking about. We will definitely jump into that and go deep. Laura, let's talk about uh, where you're calling from and what you're going to talk about today. So. Uh, I'm calling from the San Francisco Bay Area, not too far from Ray. I'm a managing director at Silicon Valley Data Capital, and I'm going to talk about sort of what's going on in the venture world and the sort of not quite post-COVID, but maybe mid-COVID and how things have either stayed the same or changed. Got it. Okay, cool. And then, of course, Dave, um, I don't know what time it is there. <laughs> where are you calling hey, right. from? And what are you talking about today? Yeah, it's the future down here. I'm in Australia. So uh, Melbourne, Australia, it's Saturday morning for me. So I've got my cup of coffee here. And uh, I'm not going to be talking about how amazing the coffee is this morning, but probably you know, the crazy world of software this year and what Dynatrace does to help people with AI and automation deliver on their software experiences throughout the year. It's been a remarkable 2020. So happy to be here and finish off the year in style. Very, very cool. Hey, well, with that, we're going to start the show. Um, Bala, do the honors, and uh, we'll kick it off. Great. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author. Oh, the book is behind me. Best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. And he's uh, just announced his new book, uh, Everyone Wants to Rule the World, and we'll maybe talk about that. Uh, he's a contributor to ZDNet, Harvard Business Review. He's regularly on television business and technology news, contributing for Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker and one of the most influential futurists on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm here with my awesome uh, co-host, co-founder, Bala Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. But more importantly, you can follow him as so many other people have for inspirational tweets, uh, followed by CIO, CEO, CMO, CFOs everywhere. And more importantly, you can see him speaking at a large number of events, very, very high profile events. If you've caught him, of course, at Dreamforce to you. And of course, more importantly, all over on TV as well um, as his 
own book. One day we will put that book up because I do have a copy of that. But it's not about us. We're going to be talking about our awesome guests today. And before we do that, we also want to thank our sponsors, Robots and Pencils, uh, especially for their general support of the show. You can check them out if you're looking at design, digital transformation, and of course, uh, thinking about where the future goes next. So with that, who does our first guest? Uh, Ray, after 664 interviews, I'm so excited to have a digital evangelist on our show. <laughs> Dave Anderson is digital evangelist at uh, Dynatrace. Uh, he's the digital performance expert of software intelligence company Dynatrace. In his uh, capacity, Dave's responsible for repositioning Dynatrace from an application performance management vendor to a software intelligence leader. Balances his, balancing his marketing uh, abilities with technical know-how, Dave is often found demoing Dynatrace at events on camera at the largest stage in the world. He's a passionate keynote speaker, has been a regular uh, speaker at major events across the globe, including AWS reInvent, Red Hat Summit, Gartner Symposium, where he shares stories on the importance of digital customer experiences and the emergence and adoption of AI and automation, which has been an incredibly important topic, especially this year. You can follow Dave on Twitter at D-A-V-E-A-N-D-O. Welcome, Dave, to Disrupt TV. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. We are really excited to have you. You're one of the pioneers in social selling, uh, you know, hitting new media, telling stories, and, you know, definitely, you know, evangelizing products. Um, and so I want to actually talk about this market in general, like business continuity, um, what's happening with the pandemic. Where do you see that going? Uh, I know you talk a lot about it for Dynatrace, but in the bigger picture, what's happening? What, why happening now? So this is a dangerous year to do predictions, right? Um, so to see what's, what's coming. Uh, I don't think any of us saw what was coming, right? So I remember being in Vegas in January and I said, the last 10 years was one of the most remarkable 10 years of all time. And you think how much technology changed in the last 10 years, what's going to happen in the next 10? And 10 days later, of course, we got hit with probably the most disruptive pandemic of all time. But you know what it did teach us aside from the you know the humane elements of this pandemic is how critical software is to everyone to everything that we do to a lot of extent software has helped us get through um this pandemic it's allowed us to do things like this where we can still connect with each other you know my kids could still homeschool you know people could still file for unemployment benefits and things like that and so you know i think more than anything it's taught us that um software needs to work it needs to work at scale. It needs to work for everyone across all the different elements. And so if people weren't already on a fast digital transformation path, they're certainly on it now. And I've heard from numerous customers that were told to do things in three days that they were meant to do in three months or three years. And um, ultimately, it just needs to work. And, um, and, 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 and it's sort of been a, a forcing function to cause change for, for a lot of us. Yeah, no, definitely. Were you at CES in January? Is that where you were? Like wondering what, I wasn't, what was going to happen? No, no, it was a it was a Dynatrace event. So it was a it was a user conference, but it was in Vegas, and um, you know, there was still talk of what was going on with this pandemic, but we didn't know, did we? Like it was going to be this disruptive. No. Maybe maybe we probably should have, and we probably should have warned, read the warning signs. Mm -hmm. But um, very disruptive year, wasn't it? Yeah, both Ray and I were at CES, and uh, there was a lot, a lot of people making predictions about the year and the future. And I think we all <laughs> can pause and reflect. Um, but you know, you know, I, I think it was Steve Jobs who said the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. And during times of uncertainty, it's so important to have trusted advisors sharing stories, lessons learned, mistakes made, 
Um, and and so you know, uh, you know, what advice do you have? You know, we had uh, Guy Kawasaki on our show, and he was the first evangelist I knew in tech. I think in 1984, he brought the Mac to working for Steve Jobs. And uh, so as an evangelist, you know, what advice do you have for other evangelists and technology companies in terms of how they can leverage power of storytelling to explain, you know, uh, what's happening and, and, and perhaps inspire and educate and ignite positive action so that people can ready themselves for the, you know, for the uh, next normal? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think storytelling is, it's critical. It goes back to the human orange origins of where we all started, right? We would sit around a campfire and, and for the amount of times I've sat in conferences and you listen to people speak and you go, wow, they're really, they're, they're really smart. And then I go to the next day and I maybe had a couple of gin and tonics and I go, what were they talking about again? I can't remember anything. <laughs> and so it's important to just get a couple of key points in that's going to resonate with people. And, and, and I think I've just been, maybe it's because I'm from Perth and I'm pretty simple and I just, I, would, I just like to tell simple stories because I, I haven't, when you did the intros, there were all these books and all these things and I'm just sitting there going like, I just tell stories. Um, but I like to tell stories that, that can make, can resonate with people that make them laugh. It can get them to react. And I found this year very hard because, mm. you know, like when you, when you present to people, you read people's body language, you, you mm. understand whether or not it's, is, is it working? Am I, uh, do I need to change tack? Do I need to do something differently? And I found this year really stressful because it's it's us doing this and it's like, do, are you agreeing with me? Are you just nodding your head because you, you have to and it's part of the show and you wish your Scott would shut up? Or um, I don't think, hopefully this is not the case, but, um, but yeah. <laughs> I'm nodding and I'm happy and I'm leading in, so I'm all into it. <laughs> it's good. We need new cues for Zoom now. It's like if he leans in, it means he's interested. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it's storytelling is critical and, and whatever business that is and, from a marketing perspective, I've worked in marketing for years. It's like, what does that person care about ultimately? What do they really care about? What's the lowest common denominator? And, you know, there's that saying of like, ask five reasons why or three reasons why, whatever. I don't even know what it is. But like, just get to the very point of what that person really cares about and market the life out of that and then find a story that substantiates whatever that is. And, um, you know, from a Dynatrace perspective, that's like helping people get home to see their family so they're not staring at software code that's broken and using an AI that gives them answers. And from my perspective, it's like, great, so you can go and spend time with the kids. You can do something more valuable with your time. You're not sort of stuck in a basement staring at lines of code. So that's what I think humans care about, letting them do things that, that make a difference. So, And that's really? where the storytelling comes from. Ray, before you ask the question, Dave just gave a great startup idea. There's about 3,200 startups in the AI space. So if you're in the computer visioning space, uh, automatically capturing tone and sentiment by video analysis would yeah. be great. <laughs> so again, just, yeah, yeah, the facial uh, gestures and leaning in, smiling eyebrows. I'm sure there's probably 100 markers that can tell you whether your audience are, is, is, is engaged and, 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 and intently listening. So again, we have lots of entrepreneurs watching. No, no, our, 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 our next, our next set of guests probably have just figured how to fund that while we're talking. So the, the, yeah. the term sheet's already out. We better worry about that. So, but it's, a, it's the sentiment, right? So that political sentiment thing, we have them in the politics in Australia. It's a little worm and it goes like positive and negative and you can be talking like now. And I, am I positive? Am I positive? Oh gosh, say something funny. Say so, Do something turn interesting. The dial, get turn a, the dial. Get turn the dial. Approval line. We had the founder of Zoom on our show a few years ago because we were one of the first, believe it or not, early users of Zoom. And, uh, you know, that's the case. That, that contextual intelligence in video streaming is sorely needed. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. I no, was just, no, it's, I just, it's totally I just, important, right? And, and so as we're, as we're thinking about how that, you know, how, how it actually works, right? I mean, 
um, just blink rate, right? We could look at blink rate, right? And, and realize that, oh, okay, maybe that person's not paying attention. It might be different for everybody, but we'll get it down to that point where we know, like for you, yeah, he's kind of cruising there. We're not sure if he's awake, but uh, we should put some shock back to him to see if he like yeah. picks up and goes. So many people are multitasking and that's the thing that we should be checking on because it's like, are you in Are you in a Chrome browser right now? Are you listening? And people are just nodding. Mm -hmm. mm, yes. <laughs> You're not listening. You're looking yeah. at the sports score. Well, but as we launched right? the show, I, as we launched the show, if some people notice, I was look, looking down, I was tweeting the show live to my followers. So it may feel like you're not paying attention, but, you know, in fact, I was just trying to, but, you know, you're, you're actively right. engaging in the conversation. They say that when you're presenting and people actually tweet that you're more engaged in the presentation than if you weren't tweeting, which <laughs> I probably read on Twitter, which was probably pushed out by Twitter to help people who are <laughs> tweeting. <laughs> it was a Twitter ad. Yeah, yeah no. Twitter but ad. I'm told, I'm with look, Ray and I, we're, when we're at a conference, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, and by the way, the, 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 the motion of writing, what I'm hearing, I have probably five, six, seven X retention. Helps your process. Uh, um, and then when I go write articles, I simply look at the tweets just to remind myself the key highlights. Uh, sorry, Ray. Go you, ahead. Have, you, sure Ray have you listened to Ray present? Like, the, if you're going to try and keep up. Like you're trying to keep yeah. up with everything that he's saying. And I'm like, again, i got to go, oh, God, I've got to get at least three things. Just remember, I remember a couple, but you're a great presenter, Ray. I've uh, followed you numerous times and seen you present and um, good idol to uh, to follow. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot. Um, so, yeah, so, but back to this point, right, on the engagement, right? It's the sense and respond, right? You are reading the audience. You're trying to figure out what the customers are thinking about, where they care, um, you know, but you've been speaking to everybody. You've got a lot of touch points with customers as they're, as you're out there speaking, talking to folks. Are there certain industries that are benefiting from what you're doing more? Are there certain industries that are like less interested? Are there certain industries that are just rocking it right now and saying like, we got to jump in? So. Yeah, there's. I mean, naturally, this year that we've always said software is is critical to everyone, right? And and it simply has to work. And so there was a point in time, sort of last year, there were certain industries that were maybe doing better than others: the, the banks, the telcos, the airlines, you know, things like that. But you know, we had Carnival Cruise Line as an example, their CIO on on stage at our Dynatrace event in January, and um, you know, their 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 uh, industry got decimated by by what happened, but you know, a lot of these brands um, are still having to double down because they're getting ready for what's going to happen in the future. So there's probably two schools. There's the one school of, of group of people that are like, we just need to keep the lights on. Like there's, I had a chat with say State of Minnesota and they said they experienced more, that they were processing the applications for unemployment and providing, you know, putting helping people put food on the table. The scale of the systems that happen to them in, in a really unorthodox way that they can't prepare for. You can prepare for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. You know the traffic volumes that are coming. You're a State Department, limited resources. You don't know what's about to happen. And so for them, keep the lights on. So a lot of the government departments are scrambling. The e-commerce brands that flip to click and collect, these sort of things, they've scaled massively. But then I'm talking to brands that have had to shut systems down and, and, you know, they, wow. they could be potentially like airlines or they could be, um, you know, cruise lines and tra travel and tourism. And actually, well, a lot of what their teams are doing now is there's a lot of noise out of their system. So they're now able to like really, really focus and go, when we come back, which we will, how are we, what are we going to do differently? How is this business going to survive? And they'll double down on digital experience and customer experience and try and optimize and automate as much as they can so that when they come back, 
they're more efficient, they can get to market faster, and they can ultimately deliver better experiences. So it's it's still everyone working in technology still got a, a absolutely critical role. And um, whether the industry is booming at the moment or whether it's down, they're both they're both required. I mean, is that the theme for 2021 for Dynatrace and yourself? Like help clients uh, shift to a digital first mindset where they recognize that, you know, it's it's maybe the most important lesson of 2020 is every company needs to be digital and every company needs to. And I think it's perhaps the biggest blind spot companies had prior to this pandemic was the power of decentralization mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and designing your company for movement because that's the only way you can get to optimal speed. You know, we moved 55,000 employees at Salesforce to work from home literally overnight because yep. we're a cloud company. You know, we could do that. We were designed for movement. Yep. What is what, what is Dynatrace going to do in terms of really helping companies adjust to this new normal, uh, you know, starting in the new year? Yeah, so it, it's a really good question. And it's, it's one of the things that we, you know, maybe three or four years ago, what, what was that Mark Anderson quote? He said, software is eating the world. And so from our perspective, software it was like, eating the world. software, it, like I, when we came up with this vision for the world needs software to work perfectly. And because it's it's medical, it's it's Salesforce, it's being able to access your real-time CRM and be able to get insights from it. It's it's absolutely everything. It's the Zoom calls we're on. So it's absolutely critical. And, and I think you've made a point where it's like a lot of the companies, particularly the ones that I'm talking to now, they always knew that it was important. Like everyone knows the importance of software. They know they need to do it. But as humans, we get worried about risk. We don't make change. We all know we need to be fitter, but what stops us from getting on the treadmill? Sometimes it's just, we just don't, we don't, and we know we shouldn't drink too much. And sometimes we do. And it's just like, this year was a forcing function and it just made people go, to your point, 55,000 people now have to work from home. The IT department goes, oh my God, how are we going to do that? Well, you're going to have to figure it out. And, And that's what we're pretty good at as humans is being able to adapt and, and I guess then from a plug from a Dynatrace perspective, it's like, well, what we do is we provide that confidence, that visibility mm-hmm. into the systems to be able to go, right, 55,000 people from working from home. Can they get onto the applications? Are they, is everyone able to get on at the same time? Is it working? Is there any scale issues? Is there any code? What, what do we need to fix? And so I think, you know, to a lot of extent, we've helped people make the jump make the jump to whether it's they're jumping to cloud hopefully they've done that by now but but maybe they needed to scale out in the cloud faster and um they needed to scale their applications out and so we give them that confidence to be able to go it's okay we'll hold your hand let's go we can do it we'll do it together (laughs) and um and and you have no choice yeah no i mean digital transformation is hard and without visibility i don't see how you can do it like if you don't have micro level visibility into your business across all lines of business with a source of truth it, it just can't be done <laughs> as a as a 15 year practitioner uh, running engineering marketing services visibility is uh, it's the greatest it's threat and opportunity it's hard and that's what it's great for dynatrace at the moment in you know without saying sort of a pandemic but it's great in terms of like it is very hard technology changes so much yeah. features are rolling out so quickly so many different types of teams big cloud environments, really decoupled as you were talking about, like, you know, very broad. And so getting visibility into everything that's running is very, very, very difficult. And and organizations are realizing how important it is to even get some of a footprint of your most important apps. You know, like I had a chat to a guy from U-Haul and he's like, okay, what are you responsible for? And he goes, 
all of our business critical applications, all of the ones that make revenue. And I go, so you're sort of like the most important person in the company there, right? Because <laughs> if people are going to pick up trucks in the middle of the night and it's your software, yeah. and he's like, yeah, absolutely. And so helping them run their operations, helping, you know, you, you, you guys get it, you're technologists, you know, you know how much, how important it is. So we're solving a pretty big problem. Yeah, for sure. All right. For well, sure. We're going to have two quick questions. Um, one, in Melbourne, what's the top, like, it's the startup culture. It's where software is in Australia. Tell us what the st software scene's like. Uh, and the last one's really, what's your New Year's resolution for 2021? I've only just got back, Ray. Like I've I was in Boston. So I, I was um I was in uh I've been in Boston for three years and in London before that. So I've only really just got back to Australia. Um so I'm still learning what the what the scene's like here. I know it's always been a really good tech hub, you know. We got we got companies like Atlassian down here and, and a few other kind of really good startups. Australians are like, we got sent to this island because we were we were, you know, originally back in the day, we were convicts and a little cheeky and we didn't do things the normal way. So um, there's plenty of startups that are doing just that. They're doing things not the normal way. They're not stealing and, and things like that. But we're a pretty innovative company. I did hear from, we, we interviewed Steve Wozniak and he did say that he wanted to come to Melbourne. It was one of his favourite cities. And so if anyone's listening and can help him get down here, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, and uh, my New Year's resolution, you know, is... Just, just to maintain maintain the year that I had this year, which was when things got really hard, maintain as much mm. happiness as I can, balance my technology time, keep up my fitness. I'm, I'm addicted to Peloton, which has helped me get through the pandemic. So I managed to get all that stuff down to Australia. So I'm one of the only people down in Australia with Peloton equipment. So um, <laughs> that's my resolution. My resolution is just, just, just keep going, keep enjoying life, keep, you know, be optimistic, amplify the positives is, awesome. is the... I was in okay. Melbourne in December last year at a Telstra conference. Best food, best people, unbelievable startup ecosystem. I was there for yeah. four days and I met a bunch of companies. Beautiful city. I, it's I a great city, back. isn't it? It's one yeah. of the, I mean, look, I've had to travel the world. I've lived in Boston. I lived in London. I love all the cities. But coming back home to Melbourne, I just, it's, it awesome. is food, it's coffee, it's, it's interesting. Coffee, people. probably coffee. the best coffee. Ray, in the world. Ray, the best. I mean, coffee was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You remind really me amazing as well. I have a Food local Italian cafe right on the corner. And even during the pandemic, I was able to go around, mask on, stand outside, get a coffee. And I was just like, this oh, is just so the cool. best thing ever. This is the best thing ever. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> we are here with Dave Anderson, digital evangelist at Dynatrace. More importantly, follow him on Twitter, D-A-V-E-A-N-D-O, and follow all his videos. They are amazing. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks. Have thanks a great so morning. Much. Thanks, guys. Awesome, thanks for having me. Awesome evangelist, digital evangelist. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, there's gonna be a whole great. club of digital evangelists coming on your end. Yeah, so. yeah, hey, that's the first one. I've met, association. So, so <laughs> but hey, who do we have next? So, oh, it, it's it's uh, an honor for us to have uh, Laura Dorian, uh, managing director with Silicon Valley Data Capital, seed an early stage venture capital fund. Previously, Laura worked for RBC, where she was a managing director and head of innovation. Her team drove 14 new products into production. Laura was named one of the innovators to watch 44 executives shaping future of banking by bank innovation. Laura was on our show last October, episode 106. Uh, so welcome back. You can follow Laura on Twitter at investingmom, I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-G-M-O-M. And along with Laura, we have Andrew Hall, who's the founder and chief executive of Lumsden Partners. 
focused on marketing services, media, and related technology industries. Prior to founding Lumsden Partners, Andrew worked with WPP in London and New York, where he was Corporate Executive Vice President. Welcome both Laura and Andrew to Disrupt TV. Thank you. So, hey, thanks for being here. I'm going to start with a question to Andrew, and it's really the, the hot question. Actually, there are two. So let's start with the, the, I think, which one's hotter, Facebook or Brexit? Where would you go? <laughs> uh, well, here, it's definitely Brexit. Uh, we've, spent, <laughs> we've spent most of the year having uh, COVID dis, um, distract us from the problems of Brexit. So it was a welcome relief, I would say, after four or five years of Brexit. But Brexit's come back with a vengeance. Um, I think it's pretty embarrassing, really. Uh, we spent four or five years trying to sort this out, and it would appear that we're headed to a no-deal situation. Uh, now, whether that is theater or reality remains to be seen. In EU uh, speak, um, you know, we're sitting here on the 11th of December. That's a long time between the 11th of December and the 31st. Uh, and most of the EU uh, deals do tend to be struck at the last moment. Um, but it's definitely not um, going to plan on either side. Wow. So what are the differences? Where are people sitting? Like what's, uh, you know, and whether you're, you know, remain or leave guy, I mean, it's like, what, what are the issues now? I mean, well, I, I think there, I think there are perhaps at the, in the, within Britain, the, the main issue has been, I voted remain just, I would say. So I'm one of the people in the middle. Um, but the debate, rather like the situation in the United States, the debate has been dominated by um, the people on the, the extreme ends of the spectrum because they make the most noise. So we have, uh, you know, the hard Brexiters saying that the EU is responsible for all woes in the world. And if we can only get rid of it, ideally abolish it, probably in their, their, their viewpoint, that everything would be solved. And then you have the hardcore Remainers, you know, say, suggesting things like, well, if there's a hard deal, a no deal Brexit, uh, there won't be any flights anymore from the UK to the EU and things like this. And it, it reduces the debate to a level of uh, silliness, really. Hmm. And I think most British people are kind of sensible and pragmatic, and they just want a sensible and pragmatic solution. Um, it strikes me that uh, this isn't, to me at least, it's an easy solution to solve because. Um, by far the most successful economy in the in in Europe is Switzerland. They've been dealing with the EU for since the 1950s. They've got several mm. land borders with Switzerland. They've got mm. the same uh, an economy that's pretty similar to the UK. Lots of financial services and healthcare and so forth. They also have a devolved structure like the UK with with cantons. We have obviously Scotland and England and so forth. And um, why we can't just admit that they that the chances of them having got this wrong are really really low and copy what they have done. I really don't know. And, and put all the exceptions in the WTO trade agreement and we'll be good? Well, it's, I mean, Switzerland is governed by the, the relationship with Switzerland and the Swiss have been very smart. You know, it's a, yeah. so the joke in, about Switzerland is that, that it's, a, um, it's a business masquerading as a country. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, I used to live in Switzerland. So, um, and they've been very smart. They've got, 20, I think, 2021 20, individual treaties which have been separately negotiated uh, they had a vote actually very recently about the freedom of movement of people and they decided not to amend the treaty but they've done a very good job uh, very highly pragmatic sensible there's a framework here and in fact the smarter of the brexiters um daniel hannan and one or two other people have 
essentially after the vote sort of suggested, well, we should just, that's what we should do. Hmm. Uh, but there's too much emotion involved in the situation. Um, something that you know a lot about in the United States. Given the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Problem at all. We have no problem with that. The similarities are striking. Actually. Very striking, very <laughs> striking. At the EU versus UK level, I think the critical issue, as amazing as this may seem for me to say this, is that there is a complete lack of understanding uh, by each side of the other. So the British don't understand that for the EU, it's not really an economic issue, it's really a political project. And so the British have hammered and hammered away about it being a free trade deal and all of this stuff. And the EU is, that's a part of the situation from the EU, but not, not the whole of it. And the EU doesn't really understand for, that for British people, um, it's really about sovereignty. I mean, there was, a, there was a, the point at which I realized that the vote was going to go this direction was on the main um, UK current affairs program when uh, an elderly lady, uh, the, the, the government was talking about economic benefits, and this benefit and that benefit. And this uh, lady who's, I guess, in her 70s put her hand up and she said, well, listen, the real issue is we want our own country not to be a small part of someone else's. And that's the reality for, for, for that. That's why the vote went in the direction it, it went in. And the EU finds this almost impossible to understand. Um, oh. And so we've, we've reached this logjam. Whether it will be uh, resolved, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I can tell you when I drove back from France on Friday, I came back from France on Friday, having been there for quite a while, there was about... I'm guessing about 10 or 15 kilometers of stationary trucks at the Channel Tunnel. So wow. if that tells you how well it's going, that's perhaps yeah. a, good, a, a good anecdotal I mean, fact. Well, it's yeah, definitely it's rolling that. financial yeah. markets. I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing oh, that as sure. well. I mean, yeah, I mean, we sure. saw that happen to the FTSE, and we saw a couple of things happen this morning that hit those financial markets. But but speaking about those financial markets, I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of shifts. There's a lot of shifts going on in these. Um, well, Laura, what's going on with funding markets? You know, where are some of these big trends? Like, are SPACs in, well, SPACs think, out, are startups yeah. back? I mean, you know, with all these IPOs? Yeah. Yeah, well, the you know, in an, in an environment where interest rates are zero, people look for, you know, return where they can get it. And so the stock market, and Andrew and I have had a lot of conversations about this, appears to have nothing, of course, to do with the economy and understand those things are different. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you touched on, you know, there's an enormous number of SPACs. Some venture funds have become full stack, everything from seed all the way to, you know, providing uh, liquidity for companies. A few funds have done that. And then um, increasingly some venture um, back companies like DraftKings went public via a SPAC. Um, a friend of mine who's in the casino, who's been, who's owned, used to own Bally's, has been on casino boards for years, tells me DraftKings is valued in his view at about 2x what it should be in terms of, uh, in terms of market cap. And um, then, you know, these late stage private companies are doing SPAC offs, you know, whoever is going to bid the most. Um, so there's, in, you know, really, for it's a seller's market uh, in, in many ways. Um, there was, of course, when COVID hit hard in Q2, you saw a bit of seizing up, of course, in the investing markets. And, of course, for anybody selling to enterprise, you know, a number of companies I know well and work with, you know, did goose egg in Q2 and then came back, roaring back in Q3 as people said, hey, you know, the world hasn't shut down. So um, there is a ton of activity because people look at the public markets and say technology's doing just fine. 
I was uh, talking to John Samorjai, who runs Salesforce Ventures for my company. And uh, I think we're only second most active, only behind Google, uh, 400 plus companies in our portfolio. I think we invest in the startup on a, a cadence of once a week. Um, and it hasn't slowed down at all in the pandemic. In fact, there's been an acceleration. What have you noticed, both of you, in terms of uh, how the pandemic has changed? You know, the Valley's known for having a very intense culture around innovation. Is that going to remain the same? What are some of the trends specific to the, to, to the pandemic? Laura, you want to go first? Yeah, I think, um, well, there, there, you know, Andrew and I uh, started working on this in the spring, like what did we, we think was going to stay the same, what was going to be different um, in the pandemic. And, um, you know, it seems pretty clear that um, remote work is here to stay, at least in some capacity, whether that's um, uh, people working for the Facebooks and Googles from, you know, Chicago or Chattanooga or wherever they want, um, people giving up commutes in really expensive cities like San Francisco and New York. And so um, that certainly seems to be the case. And of course, technologies that enable, I think, uh, digital transformation at Ray's uh, conference, CIOs have said, you know, digital transformation, it was something they were interested in. Now it's a necessity because to your last guest point, you know, people all of a sudden said, oh, it's like capital markets in New York, a group that never expected to work remotely all of a sudden went remote, right? So there's a whole lot uh, that needs to take place. And I think an appreciation for redoing an entire enterprise stack to uh, support that. Right, right. Acquisitions made completely remote. Uh, and yeah, and San Francisco is pretty expensive. Even Elon Musk mm -hmm. was moving to Texas. Remote so. due diligence. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, actually, so my husband and I've lived here for a long time, and we've often heard about the demise of San Francisco, but we're actually now seeing it because the number of people we know moving is actually not that small. And friends of ours who've lived here for a long time, it's actually been quite, it's actually pretty shocking. Where are they heading to? Austin? Where are they going? Uh, is there Austin, Florida, um, Seattle. Um, you know, I, you know, they look like tra tax refugees. It's <laughs> <laughs> There's a common thread there, but yes. Yeah, you know, all states without Florida. state income tax, you know. Yeah. So. What's going on? You're in it. I think in, in my world, I think the really interesting question, perhaps the most important question, is um, what impact will this have on the consumer? Hmm. And uh, I think it's a little early to say in that there is some, some good early data which shows you know, people are more conscious about what they're shopping for. There's hmm. been a, a fall in loyal, brand loyalty. Uh, people are more focused. Uh, McKenzie was on our show. 75% have changed brands during the pandemic. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and it's, is, consistent across, yeah. it's consistent across country as well. Yeah. And, um, and the, main, the, the main driver is value. Um, right. In every country surveyed that value was the main driver. So I think that the critical question is, I heard um, actually Sam Zell talking about this, is, is the pandemic going to be a sort of blip or is it going to be more like the Great Depression or the Second World War in terms of people's psyche? And um, in, you know, I'm mostly involved in the marketing services and advertising business. And so that's a critical question. Uh, I don't think we can assume that it will go back to how it was. Some things might go back to how they were, but I, I think there's gonna be a fundamental shift here. And, and it's also against the backdrop of uh, the so-called K-shaped recovery and uh, most consumers being less wealthy. 
Um, that's going to vary a bit by country, obviously, or maybe a lot by country, and certainly a lot by income distribution. But uh, but in general, if you're talking about mass markets, consumers are definitely going to be less wealthy. So there's two, there's two additional filters in terms of the discretionary spend. The first, the pre-pandemic, it was relevance, uh, but now it's safety and accessibility as well. Correct. You know, many cities going back to lockdown, so you know you don't you just don't have access to certain goods and services, and then of course, safety is becoming like a bland, brand pillar. I walk in a restaurant if I don't see the employees wearing proper masks, I walk right back out. Uh, uh, so. It's, um, I, I think it's, it's also a, an issue of, I mean, Zoom is a good, good example and, and it's various competitors. I think there's also issue, an issue of learned behavior. And so what, what you often see is a situation in which the change doesn't happen gradually, but when it happens and people learn what to do, they don't go back to what they were doing before. And so you could think about that in terms of technology adoption, which is obviously much more the subject of some of the other people on the, on the show than me. But also you could think about it in terms of, I think one of the things that consumers are likely to do is they're likely to say, well, I've been buying a whole lot of stuff that I don't really need. <laughs> and, you know, here I am stuck at home. I've been in my house, um, you know, where I've, you know, where do I really need all this stuff, right? And, and do I really need pants that don't have an elastic waistband, apparently, is something that I see all the time. But, but, but at, the same, at the same time, we've had this crazy, I don't know whether you've picked this up or whether anybody on your show has talked about this, we've had a crazy situation in the, in the auction collectibles market, which has gone ballistic. Yeah. Um, so things like watches, for example, you know, are setting all-time record high prices, um, and um, and art as well, and 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 so it's it's really strange what's going on. It's not necessarily that one, that one less trip to the Maldives has actually allowed you to buy something. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, or, or, or at a more mundane level, the fact that people are not at home mean or are at home and they're not going to the office means they like can't go out for lunch. They can't buy lots of coffees at wherever and spend money you know when they're in a, in a big city and so that that money has become if you've still got a job and you're still being paid at the same level your discretionary income has gone up quite a lot yeah it is and, and you get like dave bringing his peloton to like australia so yeah <laughs> because he can't get one down there so but hey you know but speaking about this you know one, one of the things that you pointed up was you're in the digital ad space right and you know, there's no bigger story than what's going on with this anti-lawsuit, antitrust lawsuit with Facebook, mm -hmm. with 47 AGs and the government piling on and what's going on in Europe piling on. I mean, it says everybody wants a cut of the uh, big tech company. What's going on? Well, um, the Financial Times headline was uh, big tech's standard oil moment. Oh. So so that's how they see it. Um, Wait, and, data is the new oil. What's going on? We were, they're not even talking yeah, about so, data. <laughs> so, so they're. they're uh, um, I think. I mean, I have some insight into this, but the, the preparation of the case by the states has been going on for quite some time, and they've been reaching out and doing a lot of research and so forth. So, I, I think it's pretty serious. Hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know for certain. Um, in the case of the EU and the UK, with this sort of arms race on fines. Uh, I think they figured out that the fines weren't changing behavior, so perhaps they'd better be higher. Um, and so the, I think the EU is 6% 6, 6 of global turnover, that's what they're proposing, and uh, the UK, I think, is suggesting 10. Wow. So those are pretty big numbers. Yeah, pretty big wow. numbers. Uh, so whether it that's will result in, in change, 
I don't, I don't know at this point. It's way too early to say. And I think, you know, a lot of this sort of litigation is going to go on for a long time. Clearly. There's going to be a lot of rich lawyers after this, I can say. Uh, for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> Larry, this is my final question to you. You've been a longtime champion uh, for women in tech from being mentors to being sponsors and advocating programs to improve inclusion. What, what, what are your observations in terms of this year? Uh, what's working and, and what's more needed? Uh, so um, every public board is looking for women and looking for people of color, underrepresented minorities. There's a ton of that, whether it's Pinterest or, or many other um, companies have made uh, announcements and additions to their board, diversifying that. But for women, um, at least in tech and the startup world, here's a staggering uh, number for you. For the, so for the first three quarters of 2021, startups with at least one female founding team member raised, and this is going to sound like a lot, 13 point Billion, but that is down 31% relative to 2019. Wow. So, um, 31%, so one third mm -hmm. less than yep. uh, pre pandemic 2019. Yep. Wow. Wow. I didn't. I haven't seen the stats yet for women founders, um, like sort of a CEO founder. But um, I can't expect it looks too much different. And um, you know, just showing that um, we still have a long way to go. Um, and I can't. I haven't dug into this yet to figure out why this is. But it's um, it's certainly not good news in terms of uh, it's obviously a, a step. It's quite a big step backwards. Well, at least there's a law here in California, Senate Bill 979, that's trying to yes. diversify the boards. So there might be something that picks up on that end. So, all right. But before we wrap this up, this is the second last show of the year. So we're doing New Year's resolutions. I'll start with Laura and then talk to you, Andrew. So, uh, so uh, yeah, thank, thank you for that. I was like, New Year's, oh my God, I guess it is, you know, getting to New Year's. Um, uh, I guess the one thing that, um, for me, that uh, COVID has uh, taught me is to appreciate small things. Obviously, uh, the fact that I live in California, and it's, you know, when we didn't have a smoke-filled fall, when I could go outside, so appreciating the um, little things when it doesn't look like I had Mars outside. So um, I am resolving to continue to appreciate the small things, even in a... Uh, a new normal or a next year. Got it. Very cool. Andrew, on your end. Well, I've spent most of 2020 with long COVID. So uh, my uh, New Year's resolution is to take better care of myself and my family. Um, uh, and I would uh, urge everybody to stay safe because the fatality is not the only thing. Long COVID is no fun. Um, and you certainly don't want it. Great advice. Thank wow. you. Great advice. We're here with Lara Druin, Managing Director at Silicon Valley Data Capital, and Andrew Hall, Founder and Chief Executive at Lumsden Partners. I can follow Lara's Twitter at Investing Mom, and Andrew is thankfully not on Twitter. No, Andrew is not on Twitter. <laughs> He's happy. To be on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Let's get the mental health down. He's all good. Uh, we thank you so much for being here. Have a happy holiday season, and uh, we'll see you a little bit after the show as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Andrew's dialing in from uh, from uh, other London, side of the pond, so we're in, you know we're interrupting his 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 dinner. Uh, our final guest. This is where Ray and I bring someone who hits a grand slam and brings the whole show home. Is uh, Martin uh, Marcinczyk, GM founder at Helm, a Comcast company. Uh, Marty is the head of uh, customer experience solutions portfolio for Comcast Strategic Development Group and the founder CEO of Helm. 
in his role, Marty focuses on establishing, acquiring, and or investing in new technologies that expand a company's offering in customer experience solutions. He also leads a team that developed Comcast's proprietary enterprise customer data platform, CDP, a solution he founded during his tenure and now is taken to market through Helm. Before his current role, Marty led Comcast's innovation strategy on customer care technologies, working on areas such as customer personalization and customer experience enhancement. Prior to Comcast, Marty held various executive positions at AOL, Transaction Network Services, and also was a founding member of several successful IPO startups. Follow Marty on Twitter at M-A-R-C-I-N-C-Z-Y-K. Welcome, Marty, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. I, I have to say I'm not a big Twitter uh, person, so you won't see me on there too often, but you know, maybe I'll uh, change my tune. Uh, and I'm not sure if I'm an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur these days. Uh, you know, I did start off my career as, uh, you know, in startup world. Uh, I was pretty fortunate and successful into taking a couple of companies public. But, um, you know, ever since I went to Comcast, I was I was given the opportunity to take that startup mentality mm. and, you know, really try to transform the operations, the care operations um, that were ongoing and, you know, take it to the next level. Um, so it was pretty exciting. They didn't put any boundaries and they allowed me really to take that on entrepreneurial spirit and and move forward there. So it's That's it's awesome. been a great ride. I've been there about 15 years now. Um, and um, after, you know, 13 or so, we kicked off Helm, which was which was a great, great, great thing. Well, it sounds like you're both. Uh, and it's what a great uh, privilege to be able to have that freedom and autonomy in a big company to really, you know, be a trailblazer, which is awesome. Congrats. Yeah, it was, it was interesting in the beginning, you know, it was, you know, you walk in the door and, you know, they're like, all right, let's try to improve customer experience. And you take a look at the landscape and there's hundreds of systems across the company, many different regions, many different um, organizations, a lot of different owners of technology stacks. Mm -hmm. And when you looked at it, it was like, how do I get a view of the customer? And everyone had their own little lens. And it was like, is there a system out there? Is there something that we can buy that could bring it all together? And we really challenged a lot of the CRM providers and the UCC providers at that time. It was probably around 2010, 2012. We put RFPs out. We've gone through all their, you know, we, we you know, had presentations at their, you know, their annual events. And we... We requested, you know, like, can can we, you know, can we can can we have you guys help us bring that solution together? And 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 at that time, it just wasn't it wasn't happening. So a lot of the the efforts internally was like, how do we start to stitch the the fabric together internally? And and that's what we wound up doing. It was it was it was pretty awesome. You know, that fabric is so important, right? We're seeing that as, as part of the heart of almost every CX initiative. I mean, this year has been crazy on CX, right? I mean, you got Facebook on customer, Twilio on segment, you know, Follis company acquiring something, but I can't really talk about that. Uh, <laughs> some large acquisition. Uh, but but it's, it's an interesting space, right? Because a lot of it is getting to signal intelligence, 
right? Mm -hmm. Can we actually get dynamic feedback loops? Can we actually predict? Um, and it's almost as if suddenly people woke up and realized that in the enterprise, just like in the consumer side, we have a social graph. In the enterprise, we need a business graph, right? And this is starting to pick up in terms of helping people figure out, you know, CX, uh, helping figure out next best action, even helping start building AI models, right? And you're doing something similar. You're doing some really cool stuff on the back end. I'm not sure how much you can divulge, but uh, it'd be fun to help uh, share a little bit what you can. So, But it is, everyone is going out there. How do we improve customer set? How do we get that 360 view of the customer? How do we start to personalize journey experiences that the customers have? And then how, as an enterprise, how do you start to understand those journeys that the customers are going through? And that was the same, you know, the problems or challenges that we had at Comcast. It was like, how do we really start to stitch it all together so that when a customer does communicate with us, how do we know what was just going on? How do we know that they were just, you know, had an error on their setup box? How do we know that they called in a couple of times and they had a technician, John, at their house? How do we bring all that relevant contextual information to the forefront so that next interaction that the company has, we could then seamlessly, you know, carry on that conversation? So I like to say is like what what we built is how do we improve the relationships that these companies, Comcast, as well as other companies have with their customers? How do we get to know the customers by having all that information? How do we start to personalize the experiences that the customers have when they embark through those journeys? And then how do we start to transform the operations from one of historically a very reactive based one to more of a proactive based one? And that's that's was our challenge at Comcast that I think we did a really good job at, and now that's what we're taking forward to other companies as well. That's 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 awesome. I mean, I, I think a hallmark of a, a world class service organization is to shift from a defensive posture where you wait for someone to tap you in the shoulder for asking for help to an offensive, proactive, and by uh, the only way to get there is enhanced contextual intelligence because it leads to you building your anticipatory muscle anticipating the needs and then delivering personalized service. And that is absolutely, I think, the key to success. How did you get Comcast to go to market with a CX product? And, 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 and what's the most important thing in order to make successful uh, CX product? All right. Before I go there, I'm probably going to, I'm going to start out and say like, our, we're a Philadelphia-based company. And one of the great historians in Philadelphia, Ben Franklin, you know, he once said, you know, an ounce of prevention <laughs> It's worth a pound of cure, right? Wow. And I think it's very yeah. relevant in Love the that. world, right? Love that. So, M Marty, if you are on Twitter, that's one you should tweet. I probably you get right. lots of retweets <laughs> and likes. But take that, that last statement. I will use that, and I'll try to make an analogy. Um, there was a professor at UPenn, um, Professor Akoff, and he once said, "You know, data uh, leads or gains to wisdom." is the gain to wisdom. And you know, he said like an ounce of information is worth a pound of data. An ounce of knowledge is worth a pound of information. An ounce of understanding is worth a pound of knowledge. And an ounce of wisdom is worth a pound of understanding. So wisdom comes from data. And you know, like the underlying world of CX today, in order to make improvements with the relationships and the customer experience you have with your customers, is you really have to, you know, create your ML, your AI, your bots, your customer experience, your CRM, all these systems are, they need to get better. They need to get an understanding of what's going on. And the underlying aspect is getting reliable and accurate data as the foundation. And at Comcast, that was that was our challenge. It was just like, how do we have all these disparate systems across the ecosystem? We had 300 of them. And how do you 
get all this data across all these different systems, bring it together very lightweight, and then be able to leverage that data in real time to improve those experiences, personalize those experiences with the customers. And so that's what we built. And in 2016, we were at full scale, you know, 30 million customers, um, 300 plus different data sources coming in. And we're able to start leveraging that data in real time to improve those experiences. We're able to stitch it all together. And at that point in time, we were like, we built something that we wanted that no one else really had. And we didn't know what it was way back then. And now some people are calling it customer data platforms, but I really believe that that's, that's more of a marketing based kind of application. And we really started it from a service based. And we thought, you know what, this is something unique. Comcast is a very entrepreneurial company. We have strategic development group that goes into new verticals and new industries. And, you know, we pitched the senior executives and we said, we have something here, we should try to take it to market. And, you know, that we had a couple of, you know, check boxes that we had to adhere to. And um, after about a year or so, the, the leadership said, yep, go ahead, have a crack at it. And so I joined forces with, you know, the internal operations, um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Luke Hagstrand is my partner in crime. He's the other founder of Helm. And, and we, you know, started first off targeting a lot of the other telcos in the MSO space. And then we soon realized that this platform that we built, this data platform repository, it's not just about the customer. It's also about getting data around any other entity. So you could look at like, look at like a franchise. So you have, you know, food and beverage or retail organizations that are really driving towards the digital space right now. And they don't have a good view of all the operations that are going on and all their different site locations. So could we leverage our platform to start getting all the intellect about what's going on at each store and then bring that up to the headquarters. And then also get information about all the customers that are coming in from the loyalty standpoint. So once we started doing that, we're like, oh, this is a cool another vertical we can go after. Um, and then it's just been exploding since then. So we're looking, you know, like the insurance and the airline and other industries and other verticals. It's a, it's a pretty interesting thing because once you have that foundation of that data, then you know it enhances all the other applications within the enterprise it it helps all these other digital initiatives the customer yeah. experience initiatives as well as you know the hottest topic in the world right now like the mlai it's all you know it's dependent upon having the data around the enterprise or the ecosystem there and what a forcing function the pandemic has been in terms of businesses understanding that if you're data poor you're not you just can't compete in in, in a in, 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 the, in the next normal, it's, it's just, it's, uh, you know, so many companies are just answering the question, you know, what happened? Uh, descriptive use of analytics and then why it happened, diagnostic use of analytics, and then maybe some small percentage is using algorithms for predictions. But in terms of prescriptive use of analytics, what can I do right now to help position myself to be successful with the predictions I'm making in sales, service, marketing, commerce? How could you, you know, if you ignore that data rich environment that's with every single moment of truth touch point with your customer, it's just a blind spot that blind spot that, in my humble opinion, ultimately will destroy your company. I just don't know how you can compete without it. Uh, anyway, sorry, Ray, <laughs> your question. I know you're waiting to ask, but no, no, no. Just to me, as a, as, a, as a former CMO, chief customer officer, I was a chief customer officer for ten years. I can't imagine not being able to. I mean, you have to just have super focus. And understanding every touch point. 
there's there's two things right and that, that i'll add to some of the stuff that you're probably addressing marty is that the, the notion of data gravity right data needs to be close to be able to make a decision and decision velocity which is i got to make quick decisions right and and people are are, are learning that right post pandemic yeah. so and you guys have built that into your, your system um so you talk about something a lot and i've heard you say this at our ambient experience summit and i've heard you say this before um you know at some of our events is really systems thinking uh let's talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that and really why it's so important with CX products. Like, and, and we had this interesting debate the other day about CRM versus CX versus front office, right? Like I have no idea what to call this stuff anymore because it's all one big mesh at the moment. Food, water, and oxygen. Thinking. Yeah, it's definitely water and oxygen. All those, all those verticals are all the same, right? They all come together if they have to work together. And you know, when you, when you think about a system, you have to look at the performance of it as a whole. You can't look at it and say, all right, I'm going to improve an individual part of the system and hope that it improves the whole system. Because if they don't work together, all of the parts, then the overall system's not going to work. Hmm. And at an enterprise, you have, you know, you have a lot of different departments. They're purchasing a lot of different applications and they're driving towards making improvements to their organization or their part of the organization. But unless all of those different disparate parts within the organization work together and all the systems of those departments work together cohesively, the entire product is not going to work very effectively. Um, you know, like the, what I was saying before about the professor Akhoff and, and Penn, he said, you know, like, take a look around and, you know, there's, you, you could, you could find there's hundreds of different cars that are being manufactured today. You can go buy the best engine, the best transmission, the best tires, the best axle, blah, 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 and bring it into a room and then try to put it together. And it's probably not going to work. The car is not going to drive. So you have to make the, the inner operations or all of the, the dependencies and the interactions between those parts, you have to make them work together. And that's the biggest challenge. So like what I would say is you have to look at a system as a whole. You can't look at the individual parts and try to improve individual parts. You have to constantly be looking at the entirety. And I think that's really what customer experience is. It's like from the customer lens. So the customer is looking at the company as a whole. They're not looking at the marketing department or the customer service department or the or the technician department. They're saying my relationship with this company is my relationship with this company. It's not with each individual component of the company. And I think that's that's really why I'm, I'm a big proponent of system thinking. It's you have to look at things as the whole, the collective to produce the best basically customer experience for an enterprise. It makes a, a ton of sense. Um, uh, Ray will ask you about your personal New Year's resolution. I'm going to ask about uh, Helm's uh, resolution for 2021. What, what are you? What are some of the big, um, you know, big initiatives, or you know, what is what's your vision for next year in terms of where you'd like to see Helm go? So uh, growth is the biggest thing, right? So of course we want to bring on more clientele. We want to expand it to new verticals. Um, and we're doing a lot of, um, you know, partnerships with some strategic technologies. So we're not the end all be all. We, you know, we come to the table with a very good product, but, you know, our product collectively with some, you know, analytics companies or some ML companies, um, collectively, we can create, you know, the bigger customer experience solution. So I think more partnerships, um, collaboration with other technology stacks, I think that's going to be a big thing. Um, I also think that, you know, I, I think we'll take more of a customer centric view as the year, you know, transpires. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I really like right now we have like the enterprise view. So we look at the lens of, you know, everything that's within one enterprise. But if you flip the model at some point, you know, the consumer has relationships with 20, 30, 50, 100 companies on a regular basis. So should all of those experiences be different or is a potential down in the future, you know, like, you know, maybe in the VR world or some other world that, you know, you could enter in this domain and have a similar experience with your telco that you do with your insurance company that you do with your airline. And maybe you can have, you know, your 360 view of your interactions with and your relationships with all the companies. Super yeah, and an experience outside your industry could be where the bar is set. So if you have this myopic view of I'm a telco, I'm just going to compare and benchmark my CX performance compared to other telcos, not realizing that it could be a retailer or a bank or that that's really uh, uh, raising the bar in terms of the expectation of the consumer and client. So I think it's critically important to have visibility across multiple industries, share best practices, recognizing that you know the innovation velocity, the speed and direction and the pace of change is such that you really can't just you know look at your own backyard, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. uh, most of our research tells us I, that. So. The other thing I was just gonna say is like, I was, when I was growing up, I was a gamer, right? But that was back in the Atari days. And, you know, and some of, Very cool. Very some cool. of the UI that we implemented into our internal Helm UIs was based on like the Defender UI. You remember, you know, the, like you're playing Defender and you could see the future coming in. Well, we, we got to do that. And we have the historical coming in and zoom in now. Um, but also, I don't know, I, like I'm sure you guys have seen Ready Player One. The movie. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I know it's a stretch, but you know, Parsifal <laughs> goes in and you know, he's he walks in and you know, like the curator is is navigating him across the whole life of James Halliday, right? Yeah. And he also can go into store and shop for things. But it's one kind of experience that he has as he's going through and navigating through that. Now I don't know if that's the future, but like envision that maybe you are in that virtual world and you're, you know, you're interfacing with all these different relationships and companies that you have. Maybe, maybe that's the future. I'm not quite sure. Sure. No, I agree with you. I mean, we got collapsing industries around new value chains. Those value chains are interconnected. Those networks of networks are driving and spinning off the next pieces. I mean, you're definitely right there. And all companies are investing in digital twins. So that becomes even more of a reality because every industry recognizes the power of digital twins. So it's an enabler. Mm -hmm. In my opinion. And those nodes of interactions are definitely important. Yeah. So, but Vala's right. I'm going to ask you, what's your New Year's resolution? And then we're going to roll out. <laughs> uh, New Year's resolution. Uh, definitely stay safe and healthy. I mean, that's yeah. that's number one. Um, you know, I haven't traveled in a long time. And mm. I, you know, I love to travel. So in the past five years, like, I went to Spalsburg to see polar bears. I went to Antarctica to see penguins. I went to Galapagos <laughs> to see the foot of boobies. I... I've been locked down. I mean, I've been able to come down to Florida and, you know, I'm here, it's but I'm the still fine <laughs> this house on the water. It, it's beautiful, but, you know, I can't go anywhere. Um, so I think travels in me. Um, and then I guess the last thing is uh, I'm working on how to bake better bread. I'm a sourdough bread maker now these days. 
Like you could work and do things oh, on the Renaissance man. I love it. Yeah, I'm, trying I'm trying to learn how to golf. I'm terrible, but I'm trying to get better at golf. So well come join me. If you're really bad at golf, you're I'm a perfect partner. We'll come <laughs> trying to hang out. <laughs> here. There's a lot of good courses down here, right? I'll come down there too if they, if they let me. So I might get quarantined for like two weeks on both ends. <laughs> so, we are here with Marty Marcinzik, general manager and founder at Helm, serial entrepreneur, intrapreneur, and more importantly, at, Com- at Comcast Companies where he's at. You can follow him on Twitter if he's there at M-A-R-C-I-N-C-Z-Y-K. Thanks a lot, Marty. Thanks, Marty, you're great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Wow. Right. Grand slam. That was it. Uh, that was awesome. Uh, wow. Uh, Sorry, we are on episode 217. <laughs> it's coming. It is our last show of the year. Um, and we've got some interesting guests. And once again, we are sponsored by Robots and Pencils. And thank you so much for your sponsorship and for folks. Check them out. Who do we have coming for episode 217? 217. Uh, we're going to get to 670 interviews by next week. 670 interviews in four years. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Mark, uh, Mark uh, Levy, uh, employee experience advisor, pioneer of experience leader at Airbnb. Who's that company? I've never heard of them before. Airbnb. What do they do? We'll have to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> to you, Mark. Lunch is on you. <laughs> this was in person. <laughs> Chantel Bear, founder and marketing partner at Forspace. And Jay Jacobs, senior vice president and head of research and strategy at Global X ETFs. So another, you know, uh, incredible. We're going to uh, talk about of, the uh, IPO hot yeah. market of uh, Shuring and UX. We're going to got space, right? Chantel did a space uh, panel at the uh, at CCE and Jay Jacobs. I mean, it's going to be interesting to talk about XETFs. So we got a patch and patch show. I'm going to flip it on Vala. Any last words? <laughs> no, I think all the New Year's resolutions in, stay, in terms of staying safe and healthy should be priority one for everyone. So hopefully, you know. Um, you know, hopefully people will take some time and end of December and decompress, ready yourself for what will be an incredibly, you know, hopefully successful year 2021 for, for all, you know, all our viewers. You know, we wish you the best. And, uh, you know, Ray and I really appreciate it. Without the viewers, without the guests, there is no Disrupt TV. So thank you for watching. And uh, we hope you tune in for the last show where we can reflect on 2020 and about the 150 some odd interviews we've done this year. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, stay healthy and safe. That's a good New Year's resolution. Right? Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah for those celebrating. And uh, see you guys next Friday. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody.